All right, on my way up, my friend who I brought to support me as I preached the Word of God was sitting on my skirt. And so when I tried to get up while Bex was introducing me, I got caught. Oh, it could have been worse than it was, I'll tell you that. It could have gone off to a really rough start. It would have been church 0.0, okay? That was a weird joke. Apologies. Oh, thank you for that. Oh, you can stay up there the whole time. That is too good. Is anyone else like me going to uh, get a discount from Spark Sport? Because that didn't turn out how I expected it to. All right, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, I'm pretty sure in the fine print it adds something about if we don't win, we get a discount, eh? So anyway, let's pray. Lord, right now, we come to you with thanksgiving and praise, but also, Lord, we come to you in need. Our nation is in need of healing. We need to rebuild, Lord. Help us. Lord, we pray, God, that you'd speak to us according to your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, it was weird. I was cracking jokes in the prayer, and then I didn't know how to make it spiritual after that. Did you notice? I paused. I wasn't even really going to try. But hey, it's good to be with you all on a labor weekend, Sunday night, past a big screen. You're awesome. We love you. Give it up for Bex, eh? She's, she's awesome. So good. And I just want to say, uh, Anna and Dan Owen are one of the greatest gifts to Elam Christian Centre out. They are just amazing people. I don't know where they are. Where is Dan? They're all there they are. Look at them. Give it up for Anna and Dan. How good. You guys are the best. Too good. Hey, you can get your sermon notes out. We've been in a series called Church.10. And a couple of years ago, I was in uh, Rome uh, for the first time. Uh, I've been to Rome twice. I just wanted you to know that. That was a bit of a drop, wasn't it? Yeah, I was doing that on purpose, so enjoy. But uh, I, I went to Rome for the first time and nothing can really prepare you for a city like Rome. You, you feel weirdly passive aggressive whenever you are like a tourist in a European city because you walk around and you begrudge the amount of tourists there all the time. You're like, man, why are there so many tourists? And then you have to remind yourself that you're not allowed to feel that way because you're a tourist, all right? You are part of the problem. And so you walk around in this state of confusion because there are so many tourists there, but nothing can prepare you. When you're from Auckland, New Zealand, nothing, when you are from East Auckland, Howitt College, which is where I'm from, Bell House, everyone, when you are from East Auckland, not much can prepare you for Europe, for Rome. You're like, man, just one of the random churches on the side of the street, if you plopped that in New Zealand, would be the best building in New Zealand. Like, you can't prepare yourself for it. You walk down the street and you randomly go into a church. It's not a special church. It's not even on the tourist map that they give you. But you walk in and you're like blown away. Every surface of the church is covered with sculptures and paintings. Every little bit of it is carved. It's grand. It's opulent. It's immense. It's incredible. And sort of the center part of Roman Catholicism, the, the heart of, the, of that sort of faith, the place, the location, is St. Peter's Basilica. That's the one that you see on TV when a new pope gets elected. And it's not actually technically in Rome. It's in the Vatican City, which turns out is its own country, which is sort of amazing. And you walk up to St. Peter's Basilica, and it's got like a runway. You know, they created it before there were planes, but there's like a runway for St. Peter's Basilica. And you hit the piazza, and there are statues all around. It's massive and immense. There are people literally everywhere. They're trying to sell you stuff. I think that they're possibly trying to steal stuff from you. It is both amazing and incredibly stressful. 
peaceful at the same time. I'll tell you what, I've never seen a queue like I saw in Rome. It, like Rainbow's in the log flume has nothing on St. Peter's Basilica. I'll tell you. But anyway, I wanted to get into the church, right? Because you can see it on the outside, but nothing's like seeing it on the inside. And I wanted to go in, but the queue was ridiculous. It was a hot day. And so I did my research and I realized that actually St. Peter's Basilica opened at 7 a.m. And I thought to myself, no self-respecting tourist is going to get up at 7 a.m. So I thought to myself, I will. (laughs) And so I got up at 6.30 a.m. in my last day of Rome, and I walked the streets, and I got to St. Peter's Basilica. There was no queue. I went in, and I was greeted by the most incredible. It was actually quite surreal when I think about it. I was surrounded by sculptures and paintings that you only really see pictured in like art history books and art books, and I was looking around at them with an uninterrupted gaze, an uninterrupted access. The only people who were there were like priests and nuns, and they were saying their morning mass. But I have to admit that as I looked around, I began to get a feeling that I didn't quite expect. See, it was so grand, it was so opulent, it was so overwhelming and overawing, so almost over the top, that I began to ask myself, God, where are you in the midst of this? Where are you here? And I felt like the Holy Spirit nudged my heart and say, Haley, I'm in the hearts of the simple men and women who serve me in this place. And I thought, isn't that just like God? Because human nature is to overcomplicate. And God is in the simplicity of a relationship. You see, for thousands of years, man's thoughts, man's rituals, man's ideas, man's philosophies have oftentimes polluted religion. Religion overcomplicates. And that's what this series is all about. Listen, we're not interested in being the church 2.0. We want to be the church 1.0. Because the truth is, something is always at its purest when it's closest to the source. So if you think of a river, a river is always at its most pure when it's nearest to the place of origin, to the place it began from. And so every once in a while, it's good for us as the church to go back to the infancy stages of the church of Jesus Christ, back to the book of Acts, and wonder what was she really like in her infancy? Because it's there in that place of purity that we want to return to. Let's turn in your Bibles to Acts 2 verse 42. To 47. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It goes on to say that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Again, it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a picture of the church at its infancy. Jesus Christ has died, he's resurrected, he's ascended to heaven, Peter has preached, and 3,000 people have been saved on the day of Pentecost. That's the birth of the church, and this is a picture of what it looked like at its beginning when it was uncontaminated by 2,000 years of man thought and man tradition. This is what it was like when it was at its purest, when it was closest to the Genesis. And friends, this is the picture of the church that we want to get back to. 
In this series, we've been slowly unpacking this piece of scripture, and today I want to zero in on one particular verse. It says, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And what this passage probably refers to is the regular meal. Both bread and wine were normal, common items that were found on the Middle Eastern table. But it says that sometime in their eating of this family meal, this regular meal, they paused to give thanks and remember Jesus. And obviously, this harks back to the night before Jesus died, where it talks about how he broke bread. We call it, in today's day and age, we call this practice communion. It's where we break bread together and we remember what Jesus has done. And it's important because it's one of only two ordinances. Now, ordinances is probably not a word that you're used to hearing often in the church. But what an ordinance is, is it is a practice which Christ ordained that we should follow. You might have also heard of it by the name of sacrament. And the Roman Catholic Church has quite a few ordinances, but the Protestant faith of which we're part of has only two, baptism and communion. Let's look at the night that Jesus ordained this practice to continue. It's Luke 22, verse 13 to 20. It says, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now, let me pause for just one second. It's important that it was Passover. You need to know that this practice of communion that we celebrate is not New Testament in its origin. It is Old Testament. It has Old Testament roots. And that's important because you need to know that the Christian faith is not something that originated with the New Testament. It is a continuation. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's making a statement. He's saying to his disciples, just so you know, this isn't a new thing. This is a continuation with the revelation that you have already received. It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes again. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This is the last meal that Jesus is gonna share with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And what he's telling them is this, after the event, after my death, after my resurrection, I want you to continue in this practice of breaking bread and remembering me. The early church did it, and we continue to do it today. There's enormous power in that, I think. See, the ordinances, baptism and communion, are important to us for two main reasons. Firstly, they are communal acts of commitment. They are communal acts of commitment. In the history of the early church, Western theologians began to refer to ordinances by the Latin word sacramentum. That's where we get the word sacrament. 
And what a sacramentum was, was an oath of allegiance that an officer would swear to his commanding officer upon entry into the Roman army. It was an oath of allegiance. Did you know that when you take the bread and take the cup, you are swearing an oath of allegiance to your commanding officer, Jesus? What that bread and that cup symbolize are Jesus, I will follow you. Jesus, I will fight for you. Jesus, I will stand for you. Jesus, I would give my life for you. It is an oath of allegiance to our commanding officer, Jesus. But I want you to pick this up today because it's not only an oath to fight for, it's an oath to fight with. See, this is the truth. The worst army in the world is an army of individuals. The Roman army were famed because of their discipline and their unity. One of the things that they are known for is a military maneuver in which they would interlock shields because they knew if they could stand for their brother, then they themselves would be safe. And you need to hear this about the nature of communion today. That is by nature something that you do as a community. It's not just an oath to fight for. It's something where we come together and we stand shoulder to shoulder with one another. And we say, I'm not just fighting for Jesus. I'm fighting with you, praying with you, standing with you until the kingdom of God comes again. You cannot divorce communion from community. The two were always meant to go hand in hand. And so we swear to Jesus that we'll fight for him. And we swear to our brothers that we will fight together. It's a communal act of commitment. Secondly, it's a visual representation of our faith. You guys obviously know what sermon illustrations are. That's when our Pastor Bex and Pastor Steve tell a reasonably funny story that has a relatively loose connection to the principle that they're trying to express. And we graciously laugh, right? Because we're like, you know, we need a break, you know? And it's hilarious. You're so funny. I know, yeah. I never do those. Mine have a clear, clear connection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's true, true. Good stuff. But a sermon illustration. I want to pitch to you today that communion and baptism were the original sermon illustrations. They were the OG sermon illustrations, all right? Back in the early church, they didn't need no fluff. They didn't need no funny stories. They just had communion and baptism, all right? They were, I don't know, actually. <laughs> they, they know I'd have had them. What communion and baptism are, are sermonic pictures. They give us the ability to graphically act out our faith. The bread and the wine are pictures of the gospel. You see, when we take the bread, which is broken, we're reminded of Jesus' body, which was broken. And when we eat it, we accept his sacrifice. We're reminded that we have accepted his sacrifice. The blood poured out like wine, you know, and we drink that to remind ourselves that we are covered by the blood of Jesus. But you see, sometimes we kind of, we kind of miss the significance of what we're doing when we act out our faith in this way. See, our temptation is to reduce things down to symbolism. 
This is what a guy called Wayne Ward said. He said, in biblical thought, Old Testament and New, a symbol actually participated in the reality which it signified. A name, a word, or sign actually was, in some measure, the thing that it signified. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not making a theological standpoint that the, the wine actually becomes the blood of Jesus and the bread actually becomes the body of Jesus. But you need to know today that when you enter into that symbolism, in some ways you participate in the reality that it's symbolizing. That's what makes it more than just a symbol and actually becomes like a source of some sort of grace to you, a means of grace to you. See, the truth is this, when you go under the waters of baptism, which is the other ordinance, what you're doing is you're identifying yourself completely with the death of Jesus. Your old life passes away under the water and you rise again a new creation. See, the truth is this, when I take the bread and I drink the cup, I participate again in my salvation reality. The fact that I am completely set free, completely delivered, completely transformed by the body and blood of Christ, it is a picture of my faith, a visual representation of the salvation that you and I possess in Jesus Christ. That's why it's important. So what do we do when we take communion? Well, I'm just going to finish this briefly. Firstly, when we take communion together, the first thing that we do is we look back. We look back in remembrance. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 24. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why is remembrance important? Well, actually, I'm going to pitch to you a slightly interesting idea tonight. If you read the Old Testament, again and again, Old Testament authors, the psalmists, and then uh, even in Deuteronomy, some of those books of the law, they repeatedly link this idea of forgetting to disobedience from God. Uh, from God. Repeatedly, you'll find that they say that the Israelite people forgot, and therefore, they disobeyed. This is what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you. Now that seems ridiculous to me. I in no way, shape, or form think that forgetfulness is a valid reason for disobedience. I'm not a mum. But when I am a mum one day, I will be giving to my child chores. And I'm looking forward to that day chores. And I imagine it going something like this. I will say to my child, child, <laughs> child, I want you to do this chore. Should have thought of an example of a chore, shouldn't I? That would have made this illustration better. <laughs> do this chore. If I come back in a couple of hours to find the chore has not been done, and I hear this said, oh, mum, I didn't do it because I forgot. I will be completely unhappy. I will be mad. I will say something along the lines of this. Well, if you knew you were going to forget, why didn't you do something to ensure that you didn't? Why didn't you do something to ensure that you remembered? Why didn't you put in a reminder in your phone? Why didn't you write something and stick it to the fridge? Why didn't you write something on your hand? I don't know, anything. Why didn't you do something in remembrance? 
of the instruction that I gave you, kind of like Jesus gives us something to do in remembrance of what he has done for us so that we are not led into disobedience. See, the truth is this. Let me just pause here for just a second. If there are any of you who are, who are, who are trapped in a cycle of disobedience, probably chances are you haven't thought of remembrance as a valid method to get out of disobedience. You see, the truth is that the more we remember the love, the more we remember the grace, the more we remember the goodness, the more we remember the freedom, the more we remember everything that we have in Christ, the less we are tempted by disobedience. Could it be today that remembrance, actually the practice of remembrance, is a key to circumventing disobedience. So firstly, we look back and we remember. Secondly, we look forward and we hope. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. See, not only do we look back, but we look forward to the fact that we serve a God who is coming back again. Listen, we serve Jesus who is the soon and coming King. Come on, somebody, he is the soon and coming king. And we live out of that sense of urgency that we will not know the hour, nor will we know the time, but let me tell you that Jesus is coming back again. So we look forward and hope. Thirdly, we look within. We look within and we repent. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. It says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. The preceding verse, it tells us that we should take the cup of communion, that we should take communion in a worthy manner. Notice that it doesn't say take communion when you are worthy, because that would eliminate this whole room, every single one of us. If you're in this place and you're saying, I'm waiting till I'm worthy, listen, <laughs> we could wait forever and we would not be worthy of a sacrifice of God who left heaven to become a king, to become a savior. We wouldn't be worthy. It doesn't say wait till you're worthy. It says take it in a worthy manner. What does that mean? It means when you take the cup, take it with integrity. Has anyone um, fake laughed before in their life? Yeah, often in church, I know. It's rough. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I forgot that I wasn't at home. Oh man, if Pastor Boyd was here, that joke would have been much less insulting. Or more. Oh, I've just gone, I'm in a pickle now. I can't get out of it. I'm just going to stay here. Yeah, deep, deep pickle. Yeah, I'm in a pickle. Now I'm just enjoying saying the word pickle. <laughs> have you ever, uh, so, so thank you for the fake laughs in that exchange. I appreciate that. So now that I've all made you fake laugh, you know what I mean. You've all done it before. Uh, or have you ever forced a compliment? Or have you ever committed to something that you don't want to go? And what happens when you do that is it feels hollow, doesn't it? It feels hollow, it feels fake, because the truth is that your actions aren't lining up with your heart condition, what's happening on the inside. And what I'm encouraging you to do is to take that principle into taking communion. See, the truth is this. If communion is an oath of allegiance to Jesus as our commanding officer, then are we really committed? Are we really committed? Have we really given our lives totally over to him? Have we really repented? 
Have we really let him be our Lord? Because that's what it means to take it in a worthy manner. It means examine my heart to ensure that my actions and my heart are in the same place. So thirdly, we look within and friend, we repent. But finally today, when we take communion, we look around. And this is really what I wanna sort of land on today. When we take communion, we look around. This is what it says in Corinthians. It says, so then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. If the band would like to join me, you can come up now, but we should all eat together. Listen, if you have been taking communion in your devotional place, in your prayer closet, if you have been taking it by yourself, I'm truly happy for you. Thank you that you have been doing that. But I think to take it individually is to undercut actually the entire narrative of the book of Acts. See, have you ever noticed that the reoccurring theme of the early church was that people were reconciled to God so that they could be reconciled to one another? The story of the church is the story of one another. See, have you even noticed that relationship with Jesus was always meant to push us into relationship with one another? And that is why the gospel is so deliberately confrontational to the world that we live in today. Because this is the world of the individualist. This is the world where self and comfort and personal freedom, personal autonomy rules. But that's not what the gospel is about. Jesus reconciles us to Himself so that we can be reconciled to one another. And the same is true with the ordinance of communion. Jesus says this. He's like, yes, celebrate me. Remember me. Remember what I did on the cross for you, but remember it together. Have you ever noticed that the first communion when Jesus sat with His disciples and broke bread and took the wine, the context of that was a family meal. Let me tell you why. Heard a story once of a pastor, uh, this is overseas, who was trapped in addiction, struggled for many, many, many years and finally sought help. And he went to a, a Christian counsellor and this Christian counsellor told him that he needed to get into a support group. So he came to the support group and he would sit and he would listen to everyone else share. He'd do the pastoral thing. He'd encourage and listen. He'd never share himself. One morning he wasn't in the group and so the counsellor went to find him. And when he found him, he realised that the reason that he hadn't come was he'd had a slip up the night before. And so he encouraged him to come to the group and the guy finally came to the group and he heard everyone else share and the counsellor said to him, you have to share today. And so the man began to share. He began to unpack the years of isolation. You know, the years of pain, struggling with something that he kept on bringing to God and trying to get over in his own strength and couldn't do it. He spoke of the years of feeling hypocritical as he told people about the grace of God whilst not experiencing the grace for himself. As he reclaimed to others to live a lifestyle that he was desperately trying to live up to, but just felt like he couldn't. He kept failing again and again. And he told the whole story with his eyes to the ground. He couldn't even look up. The counselor encouraged him to lift his head. And when he did, 
he began to see something that he did not expect to see. He expected to see judgment and condemnation and accusation. But what he saw when he looked into the eyes of the people who were with him in the group was he began to see love and compassion and acceptance and grace. And the power of his addiction was broken that moment. Friend, you need to understand something of the way that God has organised the body. See, you know that we are called to be God's representation on this earth. And we often think of that in terms of us representing Him to the world. But you need to know today that we are called to represent Him to one another. And so when I take the bread and when I take the cup and when I think of the love and the mercy of a God who would step out of heaven and hang on a cross to save me, I am meant to then look up and see the love of Jesus represented in the eyes of another and the grace of Jesus represented in the eyes of another and the mercy of Jesus represented in the eyes of another. Because the truth is sometimes it's not enough for us to just know about it. We have to see it reflected in the eyes of the body that you were called to journey with. That's why, friend, we gotta do this thing together. Because sometimes it's not enough to just know about it. Sometimes you have to see it. With every eye closed and every head bowed. Maybe today you have never known that love that I've been talking about. Actually, I need to make this a bit specific. I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying that there are people who have never known the acceptance of God. And you have felt like an outsider your entire life. You felt like you don't belong. You felt like you don't fit in. You felt like everyone else has a plan or a purpose or something except for you. And I need you to know that Jesus' death is enough to bring you, friends, into the family. See, we were all created to be part of the family of God. You were created to know that love, to know that goodness, to know that belonging, to know that acceptance. But it begins with accepting what Jesus has done for you on the cross. It begins with you in this place making a decision today to say, I'm turning from my own way because it's not working. I'm gonna choose instead to go your way, God. I'm gonna choose today to give my life to you. And so if that's you in this place, in a moment, I'm gonna count to three. And all I ask you to do is raise your hand, saying, count me in. I wanna make that decision to accept Jesus, to become a son and daughter of God, to become part of the family of God. I wanna make that decision today. So if that's you, I'm gonna count to three. And I just ask that at the end of that three count, you'd raise your hand. One, two, three. If that's you, raise your hand. Thank you, God bless you, I see that hand. 
Thank you. God bless you. I see that hand. Thank you. God bless you. I see that hand. Is there anyone else who's saying, I want to make that decision today? Just felt again, you've been saying, I felt like an outsider. (laughs) And I want to receive that acceptance and that belonging today. If that's you, just raise your hand. Yeah, thank you. God bless you. Thank you. I see that hand. Awesome. Church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Saviour. Today, I give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I turn from sin and follow you. Thanks to you, I'm free. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Can we celebrate these people tonight?